Amen. All right. Well, hey, Mercy Fellowship, give the band a round of applause for leading us this morning. Love that song. That was great. All right. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Curtis. I'm the associate pastor here at the church. Honored to be preaching to you guys this morning. We are in week two of this three-week sermon series titled Good News of Great Joy, looking at the songs of Christmas that are found in Luke 1 and Luke chapter 2. Last week, we started with looking at Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. So if you missed that or you're interested in that, you go onto our website and you can look at that sermon in the past. Uh, but this week, week chapter 2, we're looking at Zachariah's song. If you want to follow along, you can follow along with one of these uh, study guides. We give them to you as just a way of saying thanks for gathering with us. It's got the scripture in the, there as well as a place to fill out notes so you can follow along with what we're doing. Now here's just a quick recap for what we did last week and, and playing with this theme of good news that leads people to rejoice. It's like this uncontrollable response that you and I have that when we receive good news, we cannot help but rejoice and respond to that good news. Uh, whether it was in 1945, known as VE Day, the victory... <laughs> Victory in Europe Day. It wasn't me, I promise. Don't look at me. Uh, whether it was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, or it was May 2011, here in the U.S., when we received the news that Osama bin Laden had been killed, who was responsible for 9-11. When we received news of evil being defeated, of darkness dying and light prevailing, the, the uncontrollable responses, well, people go to the streets and they rejoice and then they sing songs, and they eat food, and they, they drink good drinks, and perhaps even some get married. Right? This is this a response that we as humans have, that when we receive good news, the response is one of rejoicing and singing. And so as we're looking at Zechariah today, I want you to know this. He, he's in a dark context. Two things that are going on in his life. The first is this. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a period of 400 years of silence. And in the Old Testament, the last book, Malachi, it kind of leaves you on a cliffhanger, if you will. The Malachi, the prophet, he says, hey, there's going to come a prophet like Elijah. If you don't know who Elijah is, that's okay. He's just a great prophet. There's going to become a prophet like Elijah, though, in the future. And he is going to be one who prepares the way of the Lord. And so generation comes, and, and they're anticipating when this prophet's going to arrive. And he doesn't arrive. They're waiting. They're longing. And no prophet arises in that time. And no prophet arises for 400 years. It's known as the 400 years of silence period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the prophet's role was this. They would receive a word from God and give it to the people. And they'd be a mediator, if you will, between God and man. So when no prophet arises, it's, it's a way of them feeling, hey, God's abandoned us. We're left to ourselves. It's 400 years of silence. And on top of that, to add insult to injury to the nation of Israel, for 400 years, they are in constant battle. Uh, they are battling the Persian army. They're battling the Greek army that's led by the great Alexander the Great. And they have a period of independence when they fight for it for a time. And once they're an independent nation, just a beast of a nation called Rome shows up. And their great general, Julius Caesar, leads the way and decimates Israel. Israel is, is not a free nation. They are an owned nation. And they have a fake pseudo-king over them called King Herod. And this is the story of which we enter into. 
It's a dark story for Zechariah. It's a dark story and a dark time for the people of God and the nation of Israel. And so they're in need of good news. And very much so for us, church, we're in need of good news today. Perhaps some of you come in today and it's hard for you to sing these songs of rejoicing that we're singing. Perhaps it's hard for you to be joyful to celebrate this time. So you're in need of good news, and just allow me the privilege of giving you good news today. I'm not coming here to give you some religious burden of do this, do this, do this. No, no, just receive today. That's all I'm asking of you. Let me just give you some good news today. This is the context for Zechariah that he needs. He needs good news. So two things before we open up our Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 is where we're going to be. But two things I want to propose to you. One is this. Our church, typically what we do is we'll read a small section of scripture and we'll unpack a lot and we'll take time to unpack it. We're going to flip that around today. We're going to read a lot of scripture and we're going to unpack a little. But I want you, church, to be able to track Zachariah's life and his story. So that's the first. The second, though, is this. More than you just being an observer of the story, I would encourage you and invite you to go ahead and identify it with Zachariah's story. Zechariah church, it's weird when we read the Bible because we're like, oh, there's these great figures from, from in the Bible and we're just different. No, no, no. Zechariah is just like you and me. Just like you and me. He has a job. He's in a relationship. Okay? He, he lives in a time of national conflict and has personal sorrow and, and unmet expectations in his life. He's very identifiable. And yet... We're going to look and see how good news comes to him and leads him to rejoice even through the dark times. Here's my thesis for you, Mercy Fellowship. The good news that God has for you is this, that in this dark world, you can rejoice. And that means this. You can rejoice because God hasn't forgotten you. God, he has not forsaken you. And we're going to see that play out in this story, that God's desire for your life is this, that he desires to give you eternal life and indestructible joy of which cannot be taken from you despite your circumstances. All right? There's a lot there, but let's go ahead and open up our Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to go ahead and read ahead uh, of the story of Zechariah. It says this, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, so important, church. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, that great prophet, 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until, the, that, um, until that day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Jumping from verse 25 to verse 57, we see this. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would, call, uh, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This is God's word. Few things, church, I want us to go ahead and unpack. There's a lot of scripture. Three things, though, we'll look at from that section. One, who's Zechariah? Number two, what's the problem that they're facing? And number three, what's the good news of which they receive? All right, those three things. First off, number one, who is Zechariah? Well, we learn this about Zechariah in verse five. He's a priest, okay? And this is a job, once again, kind of like a prophet, of being a mediator, that as a prophet would receive a word from God and go to man, that was the flow of traffic, if you will. A priest was the opposite. A priest would receive the prayers and the cares of the people of God in the temple, would make sacrifices for them in the temple, and would bring that up to God. So a prophet would go from God to man. Zachariah's job was this. He would go from man to God. His job as a priest is, is that he would go ahead and do these things. Furthermore, though, you need to know this. He didn't have a nine-to-five job like you and me, okay? Uh, what he did is actually he worked as, uh, service times. And so he would be in the temple for a full week at a time, two times a year. This is his job. This is what he does. This is what he's called to. And on top of that, he serves within his clan in Israel, his tribe. So he's a priest, but we also see this about him, that he's married to a woman named Elizabeth. And it says, Elizabeth, she's a daughter of Aaron. Now, if you know your Bibles, Aaron, he is the, the uh, brother of Moses. But more importantly than that, though, Aaron is the very first priest in Israel's history. And this is so significant because for Zechariah, for Elizabeth, they would have the appearance of like, man, this is a godly couple. This is a couple who comes from a line of priests. And this is a, a couple who knows God's word. 
They would have been highly regarded in their town. They would have been highly regarded amongst the people that they worked with. However, there's a problem that arises for them. The problem that arises for them in verse 7 says this, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It's not in my notes, but I just feel compelled perhaps by the Spirit to say this. You could be serving in ministry, be godly. It even says of Zachariah and Elizabeth that they're righteous, blameless before God and not have answered prayers. That's a possibility, church. And we're going to see later on in this story, actually, that God, in fact, does answer prayers. That's good news, and we'll get there in a second. But for those of you that are in a period right now, I want you to think about this. Your prayers that you've been praying, however long you've been praying them, it's not that they're not answered because you're not godly enough. That's not it. Continuing on with their story, their problem is this. They have no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. All right? So for them, older, can't have children, and this is something like that window's passed. It, it, they're not coming back to it. They can't have kids. This is something that is impossible for them. This is what they're dealing with. Furthermore, for their culture, though, what you need to know is this. In that cultural time, having children was a sign that God was blessing you, and not having children was a sign that God, you, God didn't have favor over your life. And you need to know this, too. This, this is a cultural idea. It's not a biblical one, all right? It's a cultural idea. This isn't a biblical one. Yes, children are a blessing from God. This is true, but it's too far to say that God either has favor for you or not because you have children or not. It's a cultural idea. It's not a biblical one. And I know this to be true for this reason. Our Lord Jesus... John the Baptist, who's the son of Zachariah and Elizabeth. I just spoiled the story for you. I'm so sorry. But Zachariah and Elizabeth, they have a son. His name's John. Doesn't have any kids, okay? And the Apostle Paul. Three great godly men in the New Testament that don't have kids. Who would dare say they're not blessed? They have favor before God. Jesus, of course, the son of God. So let me be clear on this. We'll just step aside from the story for a second. Culture will always have wrong views of God. It's like almost inescapable. Culture will always have wrong views of God. They did back then and they do today. Back then, okay, well, if you have children, you're blessed by God. If you don't have children, you're not blessed by God. In our day, well, well God just cares that you're happy. God just wants you to do whatever you want with your life. And as long as you're happy with what you're doing, God's happy with you. And church, I don't even like push back at that. God does want you to be happy, but he wants you to be happy in him. He wants to be blessed in him. That's the push. That's the difference. Culture will always have wrong views of God because they're ignorant of who God is. And so if you come in today and you don't know who God is, my encouragement to you would be this. Open up the word. Study Jesus intimately, intentionally. Pray. Do this repetitively and faithfully. And see what God would do. See what God would do. The writer of Hebrews says this, that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So if you want to know God, study Jesus. All right, back to the story. Here's the scene. Zachariah is a priest. He's married to Elizabeth. Both are old. They don't have any children. And while Zachariah is on duty away from home at the temple, the angel Gabriel visits him and gives him this good news. 
And good news arrives to this, that their prayers have been heard and that God is going to give them a son. Church, this is good news. God answers prayer. He answers prayer. Some of you might be like Zachariah and Elizabeth, and you've been praying for not just days, but years. And not just years, perhaps, but even decades. And you're wondering, hey, does God hear what I say? And we see from this story that God, in fact, does answer prayers. But we have to keep this in mind. Our God is not a genie. Our God is God. And that means this, that God has, A, the prerogative uh, and the privilege of whether he will answer those prayers or not, and B, at what time he will answer those prayers. God is not a genie church where we just rub this magic lamp and then we cry out to him and he gives us what we want and serves us. No, no, we serve him. He's God. God's not a vending machine where we just put in the right quarters and we do the right things and we live the right way and and then we appease our deity so that he goes ahead and does what we want for him. No, no, God is God, and he has the prerogative as well as the privilege on whether or not he will answer prayers and at what time. And and this is good news to you and me, church, this, that he, in fact, answers prayers. He answers prayers. They've been praying for a son. They're older in life. That, That window's passed, something that is impossible, and God has taken that which is impossible and has made a way through prayer. They're going to have a son. His name will be John. The most important thing about John, you need to know this, though, is this. It says that he will be great before the Lord. And that means this, that John is going to prepare the way for Jesus. It's what we saw in in, in the last book in the Old Testament with Malachi. He's going to be a prophet like Elijah, and he's going to prepare the way for God to come in right behind him and be entered into human history. This is going to be his life's work. And Zechariah, despite getting this good news that arrives to him, he doesn't respond in praise. He doesn't respond with thanksgiving. Rather, it says, he responds in disbelief. And it's interesting because you read your New Testament in the English, and it kind of seems like he's just questioning the angel. Like, oh, how is this going to be and stuff? That's not really how it is in the Greek. In the Greek, he's more antagonistic. He's more combative with the angel. Like Zechariah is saying to the angel, hey, angel, let's just be clear. I'm old. My wife's old. This can't happen. And it's so crazy. He's a priest. He reads the same Bible you and I do. He knows what God can do and can't do. And even still, he's saying, this can't happen. You're wrong. You're mistaken. I love Gabriel's response. Gabriel's response is something like this. Well, Zechariah, this is going to happen whether you believe it or not. God's not Santa Claus who runs on the belief of his people, okay? He's God, and he's going to do what God is going to do. However, Zechariah, because you didn't respond in praise and rejoice, but rather you responded in disbelief, you are going to be made silent during your wife's duration of her pregnancy. Now, some of you women that are here who have been pregnant, perhaps it would have been a blessing for you if your husband would have been silent for those nine months, right? There's a lot of things I said I wish I could take back, you know, it probably would have been very good for me. Perhaps you think about that for your husband as well, right? But here's what I want you to know. Although he's being disciplined, 
Although this is suffering that's coming upon his life, it's going to produce fruit in Zechariah's life. In the end, it's going to be a blessing for him. And it's going to be a blessing because it's going to result in him singing praises to God. Let's pause for a second and let's just acknowledge this. There is wisdom, Mercy Fellowship, in being silent. There's wisdom in being silent, okay? Some of your marriages, some of your relationships, they're strained. And they're strained for this reason. When, when someone says something to you and it pricks you, you just want to be combative. And, and you're wrong in this and this and this. And you just start speaking and saying the wrong things. And it would be such a blessing for those relationships if, man, you just paused for a second, thought about the situation, kind of made sense of it in your mind, and then responded appropriately. There is wisdom, Mercy Fellowship, in being silent because it allows you to ponder in your heart what you've been told and then to make sense of this. This is a huge problem, I think, for our society in large. And in large part, it gets inflated because of stuff like social media, of which I'm guilty of as well. But when you see something on social media you don't like, you're just so quick to respond and say something and get my opinion out. And like, how much more delightful would social media be if everyone just kind of took it down a notch, pondered a little bit, remained silent a little bit as far as some of these things go. James, the the half-brother of Jesus, he says this in regards to our our language. He says, for the person who can't bridle their, their tongue, they deceive their heart and their religion's worthless. And it's a way of saying this. You might come up as a, as a man of God or a woman of God and say, well, I've got discipline and I've got self-control and I'm godly. But then when things pop up, you're so quick just to react and to say stuff off the cuff. Self-control, you don't have self-control. Control your tongue. Self-control, you don't, you don't have discipline. Church, there is benefit in being silent because it produces Produces the fruits of patience, self-control, godliness, and being more like Jesus. And if that's the result of being silent, that's a win. That's a win. Uh, my wife, she gave birth to our son recently in October, and uh, we're just loving life with him. So great. Just recently, though, actually this last week, he ended up having an infection in his toe. And it had an ingrown toenail. I gave that to him as part of my family line. And he got all his good looks from his mom. So it's really, really disappointing. But anyways, he had an ingrown toe. And in order to get the infection out, it's really actually a weird thing. Like, I have to inflict more pain on my son in order to get that infection out in order for, in the long run, for him to be better and to have joy and to have happiness down the road. And I was thinking about that. And I think in a lot of ways, that's a lot how God is with us. That, that God will allow pain to come upon us. He'll allow suffering to come upon us. He does it here with Zechariah with him being silent. And he does this, church, for in the long run, getting rid of the infections that we have in our lives so that we might have greater joy and happiness down the road. There's a quote here from a guy named J.C. Ryle. He was an English minister in the 1800s, and he says this. The grace of God exempts no one from trouble. Let us count trial no strange thing. If afflictions drive us nearer to Christ, the Bible, and prayer, they are positive blessings. We may not think so now, but we will when we, uh, think so when we wake up in another world. There is wisdom in silence as it causes us to ponder what we're told. And this is what's happening to Zechariah. 
For nine months, he's not able to speak. For nine months, he just has to ponder and wrestle with himself what the angel told him. And the result is this, when Elizabeth actually does give birth to their son, John, he has an opportunity to respond correctly. He didn't respond correctly the first time, but now he's got an opportunity for redemption and he cries out with praises to God. Here's what he says in his song. This is what he sings after receiving good news. Verses 68 through 75. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He starts off by telling us who God is. And he starts off by saying this, God is worthy of praise because he has visited and redeemed his people. You need to know this today, church. God is a redeemer. And if you question what that word redemption or redeem means, it simply just means this, that your life today can change. Our society at large can change. Nations can change. And the reason that such change is possible is because God has raised up, Zechariah says, a horn of salvation. And what is that? A horn in the Old Testament, it was a symbol of strength. Think of a bullhorn, think of a, a ram's horn. And what Zechariah is saying here is that a mighty salvation, a strong salvation, a great salvation has come to us in the person of Jesus and has arrived to God's people. And this salvation church is so strong, it's so powerful that it can change your life and it can change nations and it can change the world for the better. This is this great salvation that has come to us. History has proven this to be true, if you study history at all. Whether it was William Wilberforce in England who eradicated slavery there as a Christian, believing that things could change, and they did. Here in the U.S. with Abraham Lincoln, and you have someone like Frederick Douglass, an African-American who fought for slavery to be eradicated in Jesus' name, and guess what? It did. History is a testament to this fact that a mighty salvation has come. One of the examples I, I tend to give you guys as a church uh, often is, and it's one that just compels me and stirs my heart, is the early church. The early church in Rome, when they were just starting off, oftentimes, not all the time, but often they'd go ahead and they'd be thrown into the Colosseum. And the Colosseum was a barbaric place where people would be devoured by lions and other animals and just destroyed by gladiators for game and for entertainment. And Christians, as they were growing and multiplying, often would be thrown into the Colosseum. And what, guess what none of the apostles did or any of the early church fathers? None of them were outside the Colosseum picketing it. None of them were outside the Colosseum spray painting orange paint all over it, trying to get them to stop doing that. They weren't saying, what do we want, justice? When do we want it now? No, no, none of that stuff. They had bigger things to do. They were planting churches. They were telling individuals like you and me about who Jesus is and what Jesus can do for our lives. And the result was this. In a couple hundred years, the Colosseum ceased to exist. The church was growing. And 2,000 years later, to where you and I are at today, 
Rome, people go visit it as a pile of rocks to see what was once great but no longer is, as the church just grows across the globe. That's a mighty salvation. That's a strong salvation. History has proven this to be true. And Zechariah, he is praising God this morning uh, through this song that such a great salvation has come and can change the world. So God, he has answered their prayers. They have a son in John. And we see that this mighty salvation has come. But, but what's John's role in this mighty salvation? What's going to be his place in this a story? And we see it in verse 76 and verse 77 of this song. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and forgiveness of their sins. This is John's ministry, if you will. John's ministry is this, that he is a forerunner or a prophet uh, before our King Jesus shows up. And when we talk about something like salvation, uh, I've been in church long enough, so I'll say a word and it goes in one ear and out the other. And I kind of forget, oh, we should unpack what salvation means. When we talk about salvation, there's really two ingredients that are in that. It's repentance, that's one, and a forgiveness of sins, that's the other. And so when Luke begins his ministry as as an older man preparing the way for Jesus, we get a picture of what this looks like. We see it in Luke chapter 3. He says this, he that is John the Baptist says, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? John the Baptist wasn't trained with formal education. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't get the class on being nice and making the place welcome and warm for people when they come to meet Jesus. He just calls them brood of vipers and they show up. All right? Very interesting tactic, but it worked for him. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's what the nation did. Abraham, well, he's our father, and God was for him. And if God's for him, therefore God's for us. And John the Baptist is saying, don't you say that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John's ministry, church, if I can just go ahead and make this simple for us, he's pointing really in two directions. One, he's pointing to you and he's pointing to me and he's saying, repent, change your ways. And with another hand, though, he's pointing to Jesus. And he's saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is John's ministry where he's saying this great salvation has come and John's going to preach repentance and also the forgiveness of sins. That's what's being said here about what John is going to do with his life. And I want us to pause and think about this for a second. This is John the Baptist's ministry, but this is also our ministry here as the church. This is also your ministry as you're, if you're a follower of Jesus. That when we go out into the world, we multiply. And we multiply by telling our friends and our family and our children and our grandchildren this message. Hey, repent and look to Jesus. Once again, church, when I use the word repent, 
I imagine there's probably some of you that don't know what that means. You probably have the picture in your head of like a guy who's on the street corner with a sign that says turn or burn, says repent. They give us a bad rap. Don't trust them, all right? Don't trust them. When it comes to the word repent, church, it's, it can be clunky and it can be legalistic. What, what I want you to think about when I use that word repent and when the Bible uses the word repent is this, that you're acknowledging I'm not my own savior. You're acknowledging, hey, I, I cannot produce change on my own. This is what you are acknowledging. So how can you change? And how do we change? Well, we change by pointing to the slain lamb, Jesus Christ, who takes away our sins. You might come in today, church, and you might be questioning Jesus. Who is he? Is he a redeemer? Is, is this salvation real? Is it true? And I want to say this about Jesus. Jesus is a complete savior. He's a complete redeemer. He not only will take away the sins from your life when you repent and ask for forgiveness, he will forgive you. And he'll take away your sins so that you can have a relationship with God and otherwise don't if you don't. He'll take your sins. But more than that, though, Mercy Fellowship, he will break the power of sin and the strongholds it has over your life. He'll remove the power it has. As some of you in this room, you are a testament to that, where you've struggled with sins, you've struggled with addiction, and then upon trusting Jesus, I'm not saying it was a perfect transition, but I am saying, hey, the power of the Holy Spirit helped me break those strongholds. My father-in-law, he's one of my favorite examples of this. His family history is, is just horrible, to say the least. It's not one that he shows off for fun. Uh, he came from an abusive father. His father was married three times over. His grandfather had a secret family no one knew about until later in life. Uh, down the family line, there's brothers murdering brothers. And there's weak men who would abandon their wives and children and run off. This is his family lineage. This is the men in their household and what they do. And then upon trusting Jesus as a high schooler, he made the commitment, my life will be different from that of my family. And Jesus, by his power, by his grace, he's the first male in his family who's been married to one woman his entire life. They've been married 35 years. How amazing is that? That's a mighty salvation, church. That is God redeeming, God changing, God transforming lives. God can redeem your family legacy. He can forgive you of your sins. Last example. I gave you Rome. I gave you my father-in-law. Last example, okay? Now, there was a, a, a British political writer, an atheist, his name is Matthew Paris, and he grew up as a missionary's son. He grew up in Africa and uh, grew up in that family. When he grew up, came older, became an atheist, rejected the faith. But every Christmas and holiday season, he'll go back to Africa because it's, it's homey. And it reminds him of his upbringing. And this is what he says when he goes back. He wrote this in 2008, but this is what he said uh, going back and visiting Africa. He said, traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too. One I've been trying to banish all of my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, 
I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes to Africa. Phenomenal statement. Sharply distinct from the work of secular non-government organizations, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real and the change is good. Whenever we entered a territory worked by missionaries, we had to acknowledge that something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. Something in their eyes, the way they approached you direct, man to man, without looking down or away. What will change society's church? What will change your life today? What will bring about indestructible joy to you today in eternal life? It's not going to be eight efforts, although they're important. It's not going to be education and, and government agencies, although they're important in their places. What has been changing culture for 2,000 years is people trusting in Jesus that he can take away the sins of the world. This is what Jesus does. This is what John's ministry is. And this is what our ministry, Mercy Fellowship, is about. This is what it's about. So we looked at John's ministry now. Let's go ahead and look forward to, to what, what does Jesus' ministry look like, right? Because John's just going to be a, a blip on the radar when you read the Gospels. He's got a short window, a few chapters, and he's just pointing you and me to Jesus. What does Jesus' salvation look like for us and it says this in verse 77 through 79. To give knowledge of salvation for his people and the forgiveness of their sins. We already read that in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What does Jesus' arrival mean for you and for me today? It means this, when we picture God, we often picture him as an upset dad or a tender, merciful, loving dad. I've been a Christian long enough, and I've talked to many of you that I know that this is the predominantly the two views that happens. And so for you today, follower of Jesus, when you mess up, when you sin, when you fall short, do you have this reaction of uh, the, the angry religious father figure that when you mess up, you say, man, I screwed up. There's no way I can go to my dad. Or do you have the tender, merciful, loving picture of God that when you mess up, you say, man, I really messed up. I need my dad. You see the difference here? And the difference hinges upon, church, what you view of God to be. And what Zachariah is telling you and me here is this. He's a tender, merciful father. It's my job, church, to persuade you this morning with all that I have that God's more merciful than you give him credit for. He's more loving and caring than we dare give him credit for. That's why the Old Testament will go ahead and say something like this, that, that his mercies, they're new for you every morning. Every morning. This is who our God is. And we know this to be true, church. We have examples of this, that God is, in fact, tender and merciful to us. When he looks down upon you and me, he sees our condition. And it says here that we're sitting in darkness. That's what it's saying. We're sitting in darkness. This, this is an analogy, if you will, for the sins of this world. There's brokenness, war, abuse, cheating, lying, stealing, murdering. Not only do we sit in darkness, but we have this impending shadow of death over us. 
And this is what God sees that's happening to you and to me, that we're dealing with these things. Death is something that's really interesting. I don't want to get too far into the woods, but I was watching a clip on YouTube recently from J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, and he was interviewed by BBC back when he was an older man and just talking about the success of Lord of the Rings and why it was so successful. And it was so interesting what he said about Lord of the Rings. He said this, if you really come down to any large story that interests people, that can hold their attention for a considerable amount of time, it's always a human story. And it's a human story by this. It deals with death and the inevitability of death. How interesting, right? The stories of death, they grip us. Right? The stories of death, they grip us. Even, even stories of, like, of, 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 uh, of just gnarly murders, that podcast that we listen to, those grip us. And there's a reason that these things grip us, because we live in this shadow of death. So, so for you and for me, church, this morning, how do we escape this? Right? How do we escape this shadow? John the Baptist, he goes on to say, hey, how are you going to escape the wrath to come? That's his way of saying it. Our God, our Father, is tender and merciful and compassionate towards you and to me. And upon Jesus' arrival into this world, Jesus lives a life you and I cannot live. He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross so that you and me might have forgiveness of sins and be pardoned for them. He, he rises to life on the third day so that you and me might have everlasting, eternal life. This is why he came, church. And because of this, therefore, death, who used to be an executioner for you and for me, is now just a gardener. And that means when we're planted one day, church, we will rise again to new life upon Jesus' return. This is why Jesus came. This is why he arrives. This is what John the Baptist is all about. And this is why Zechariah rejoices. Perhaps this is why John in his gospel starts off by saying this about Jesus. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So this morning, Mercy Fellowship, do you want a path of peace do you want indestructible joy? Do you want change? This is the reason Jesus came. This is the reason Zachariah is celebrating and rejoicing. And this is the cause, church, for you and me to celebrate. And I just want to start uh, with saying this, and I'll end with this. God is holding out his hands to you this morning with indestructible joy, with eternal life, uh, being a tender, merciful father to you and to me. And the way that you receive those things is not by getting my act together and just working hard and doing the right things. No, no, you simply receive it by faith. Do you believe this to be true? If you believe this to be true, Mercy Fellowship, it's yours. These gifts are yours, and they come from a hand of a merciful, tender, loving Father. Let's pray.